Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Tony Steer is with us today. Tony is the director of Legacy 68.5 at Houston's First Baptist Church. Um, she is also a former missionary, an adoptive mom, a good friend. Um, she is usually my phone a friend when I need a connection to a resource for a family. So we are really grateful for her being here with us today. Tony, it's great to have you here. Um, I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation. Start off by just telling us a little bit about what you do. What is your role at uh, Legacy 68.5? Well, I'm super grateful to be here today um, and to just get to talk a little bit more about who we are and what we do. So Legacy 68.5 is um, Houston's first adoption, foster, and orphan care ministry. Often we get stuck in one of those areas. Each area is so nuanced. Um, so my days look different every single day. Uh, some days I'm working here locally and um, supporting holistically foster and adoptive families um, through connection gatherings, relevant equipping, parenting tools, but then the hard work of sustaining families when things don't go the way they thought they would. Um, and other days or other hours, I'm across the globe in Kenya or Guatemala supporting those who are taking children in residentially who have um, really large needs. And so the job is exceedingly diverse, but it's a it's an adventure and something I'm super grateful to be a part of. It's a whole lot of different things that you're doing. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what brought you into that. Why did you want to start working in that field? Yeah. So I felt um, just an invitation from the Lord at a super young age. Um, I, I don't know that I could pinpoint exactly what it was uh, that, that really pricked my heart for children, uh, vulnerable children. But early on, I experienced some mission trips um, and I look back and they certainly did not hit the best practices markers, but God did use them to begin to shape and mold my heart. And so as a young college graduate, I found myself living in an orphanage in Guatemala City. And um, over the course of about 12 years, I was a house parent, a teacher, um, became an adoptive mom during that season, and ultimately served as a social worker for that same um, large children's home. And so after um, several years on the field, Houston's First, a supporting church, invited me to come and be a part of the work that God was beginning here locally. And I thought that was a wild idea. Usually we deploy missionaries. We don't bring them back off the field unless there's a reason. But God definitely had a reason, both professionally, but really, really intimately for our family um, as we worked through the unique nuances and struggles of adoption. Tell me a little bit about who comes to you. So you mentioned foster, adoptive families. Sometimes you go internationally, but, and you mentioned a little bit about the challenges that some of the families face. Tell me a little bit more about who those families are. How do they get to you at Legacy 68.5? Well, I think, first of all, we receive a lot of families who are Houston's first members. They attend at one of our campuses across the city and maybe came to the church already being licensed, already being an adoptive family. Sometimes they are people in our life Bible study or our community groups who hear another family story and become curious and want to begin exploring themselves. 
But a lot of times the people who are coming to us are finding us through a Google search. They're looking for care and help for their family that is hitting a level of crisis that they've not known. And they're looking for someone who understands and can point them in the right direction. So we get a lot of cold calls. I assume families in crisis, Mm -hmm. right? Families who stepped into a situation where they're wanting and willing to step in and pull a kid out of the river, as we say often, um, to provide a home. And then trauma happens, Mm -hmm. right? And behaviors happen and the family becomes a little bit unstable, right? And they're looking for resources. Absolutely. So how does that tend to play out? You know, if, if a family comes to you and they're saying, hey, I just, I need support, I need help. Where do you step in and how do you step in? What always starts with an initial phone call just to hear the story. And that's usually, not always, but usually that's mom calling and saying, hey, here's who I am. Here's what we're struggling with. We usually don't get introductions to anything else. It's just, here's all the challenges that we're facing right now. And so that initial call is, we dedicate a a good amount of time to that. It can be as long as 90 minutes. Um, And what we do is we're not there to diagnose the problem. We're simply, our team is simply there to listen. And as we're listening, we're looking for partners in the city in our brain who have resources to help come around and support that family. And so that initial uh, phone call leads to what we call pathways. And pathways, just imagine um, Hansel and Gretel leaving breadcrumbs through the forest, right? We're looking for step one, step two, step three, because often when a family comes in crisis, they don't have the capacity to go look for the right tools. They just need a tool, right? And so often we spin our wheels utilizing the wrong tool. So our job is to say, okay, here are kind of, here's kind of your pathway toward healing. And so we, we provide referrals um, for families to get on track with that. And that looks professional, but it also looks um, incredibly personal because we know if we're not okay as parents, our kids are certainly not going to be okay. So somewhere in that pathway is an invitation to join the child in doing the hard work of resolving our own history as parents. There's so much support needed in that regard. Absolutely. I mean, we see it over and over. We talk about the the idea of the river, right? Families and churches and different resources are on the side trying to pull kids and families out, but stabilizing them on the side is not an easy task, yeah. right? What we want to see happen and what we talk about a lot is we want to prevent families from sliding back down into the water. Absolutely. We had a conversation with um, our friends over at CPS and they're saying disruptions are actually increasing. So mm-hmm. adoptions that are getting disrupted and placements that are getting disrupted, which is giving kids back. Right. Um, and, and that it shouldn't happen. I know that mm-hmm. it happens under extreme circumstances, but it begs the question, what do we need to do as a community to make sure that that doesn't continue to happen? Because if you think about that from the the standpoint of a child who has already experienced extreme loss to enter into a family only to be pushed back down into the water. How do we prevent that? What's the type of support that families need? You mentioned a little bit about referrals, but how does the community step in for that? We see two different things. One, um, just like we want to meet children where they're at. We don't want to throw a life raft to them from the side, but we actually want to get in um, to the river with them. We want to do the same with exploring families. We want to make sure that there's a really good theological basis for why we're giving a yes to a child in need. It is 
amazing to be able to give a yes to a child in need. But often we find our motivations or expectations as we get into the journey don't line up with the actual reality of what the journey is going to look like. And so Mm -hmm. once it starts getting hard, we really look to relieve that. If a family is coming to us and they're already in the river, right, they're already in trouble, um, we typically want to come around them in two distinct ways, if you can think of concentric circles. So the first way is we want to get, we want to put the fire out. And so we're going to call the professionals in. We're not going to do that as lay people. We want to put the first Mm -hmm. ring around them to be a holistic circle of professionals who are really well versed in the nuances of adoption and foster care to help stabilize the family. And almost simultaneously, we're calling on the church to say, okay, this, this family's doing the hard work of healing, they need really practical supports like meals, Mm -hmm. uh, really practical supports like laundry, cleaned bathrooms, just basic things that tend to go undone when you're doing the hard emotional and spiritual work. Just relieve the pressure. Absolutely. Relieve the pressure. So we tell our volunteers, um, we're not looking for you to fit in a box that we've created for you. If you are well equipped with a gift that you would like to serve with, there's a really good chance that there's a family in our community who needs that exact gift. So don't be shy about telling us what it is. So we look at those concentric circles, the first one being the professionals, and the second one, which happens almost simultaneously, being volunteers in the body of Christ coming around each individual family. We call them care communities. And that's something that we we talk a lot about as well, that um, we don't need more families faster, mm-hmm. right? Most people when we, or a church or organization that we talk to, when we talk about foster care, automatically they say, I can't bring somebody into my home, mm-hmm. or I don't think I have what it takes. And that's fine. We think that some people should not take kids into their home. A vast majority of the population probably shouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place for you along the river. And so Absolutely. that is kind of exactly what you're talking about, building support systems around families to make sure that they don't slide back into the river is so important to make sure that we have a sustainable process here. That is something that we need more people to step in. Like you said, Mm -hmm. give your gift, have whatever it is that you have to give. We can find a place for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You mentioned trauma and I want to, you're a trust-based relational intervention practitioner as am I, as are many people who come on this podcast because we believe in the work um, that they're doing to over, not even overcome, but help to resolve and to heal um, trauma with kids that come from hard places. So tell me about how trauma fits in there um, into that whole picture. Families in crisis, usually at its root, there's trauma happening. Tell me more about how you see that playing out in your role. A lot of times we talked about the cold calls, the families who are calling just looking for uh, resources, looking for a fix, if you will. Um, And one of my newfound uh, favorite authors, I hope he's going to write a lot more books, um, is Jeffrey Ulrich. He recently wrote the book, The Six Needs of Every Child. One of the interesting um, shifts that he encourages us to do when trauma is on board, and for all of us, trauma is on board in one way or another. Um, And he says, oftentimes we come to the conversation with what do I do with this human? right? That's causing me pain. Or what do I do with this child that has really big emotion and really big behavior? And the shift is when we can stop asking, what do I do? And how do I be with Mm -hmm. this person? So when trauma is on board, often we just, it's not pleasurable to be with. Trauma responses are 
that's right. We want to protect ourselves, right? We know that trauma changes the five Bs, brain, uh, body, biology, beliefs, and behavior. And so that just about sums up everything, right? So that makes everything hard. That's why the first 90-minute call, we really feel like everyone in the circumstance needs to be seen. Yeah. They need to be known, And from that space, we launch into, okay, how do we be with one another? How do we as a ministry help be with you as parents so that you have the capacity to begin to be with truly attuned to the child in their greatest hour of need? Dr. Tina Bryson says, um, when we see that big behavior, often what a child is actually telling us or an adult is, hey, I lack a skill, teach me. And so that's kind of how we look at trauma as an opportunity for um, both comfort and healing, but also discipleship. That's good. That's helpful. One of the things that I see a lot, um, we have lots of families who are fostering in our city. We see, you know, I'm a foster adoptive parent. And so I interact with with, um, families from time to time, either online or whatever. Um, And I think sometimes that I'm perceiving that often, whether they're not getting that understanding within their agency, which I do think is somewhat of a problem. We partner with lots of different agencies and help them to to find ways to support their families and sure. make sure they're getting those connections to resources. But I think what I what I often see are families who are starting, you know, you, you start off with the placement, depending on how old the kid is, as they kind of near that five, six, they're starting to go to school, behaviors mm-hmm. are starting to come up. Yeah. As a parent, you want the quick fix. We want, yes. we want, tell me how to fix this behavior. Tell me what to do because this is getting out of control and often I see lots of like band-aid band-aid you know like they need to go do this or you know maybe you know whatever it is the the quick fix right. I, I see few families or people or resources who are saying hey I think it's trauma I think what you're seeing is exactly what you're saying the way that trauma has affected their behavior and their belief system they need attachment they need connection and often it's either circumvented just because they don't know that there are resources out there how do we help families find those resources and how do we help to connect them so that they recognize that trauma early rather than letting it fester or they kind of try all the quick fixes and they don't work and now kid is eight years old or 12 years old and they're ready to move on. They can't take it anymore. Or the child has gotten so out of control and are still not learning, are still not connecting. um, And it's just way further downstream at that point. I think it's a great question. Something that I would love to see invested into you in our city. Mm -hmm. I really feel like a lot of these disruptions that are coming and a lot of the crisis calls that are coming are coming in ways that looking back at where it began, it was completely preventable. Yeah. And so I really do believe that families are getting some good training prior Mm -hmm. to, but you're an adoptive parent, I'm an adoptive parent. It doesn't mean anything until you've got the child in the home. And then you're like, what did they tell me to do? What did they say? There's no, yeah, exactly. There's no handles for it. And so um, I feel like early intervention is key and so rare in our city. But I would love to see a day when parents, even in those first chaotic days of placement, have a net that they can actually Mm -hmm. feel around them. So yes, that looks like that second concentric circles where we're heavily present in the first days, months, and even years of placement. But I also think allowing foster children 
to come into care with a multidisciplinary team ready to attend them at the point of placement would wildly prevent a lot of the circumstances that we are facing. They, as little humans, have faced more than many of us as adults have faced in a lifetime. And no amount of safety, knowledgeable safety on our part as adults, can translate and penetrate that trauma without intentional services. Often I I think about burn victims and how intense the process is to get them stable, much less to get them to a point of functionality. Mm -hmm. It's a consistent going back to those who know how to bandage wounds. And I think because many of our children are coming to us with invisible wounds, we just think that love is enough. And while I almost don't like that phrase that love is not enough, um, I've come to believe that because most of the time we're tapping into what we have to give as human Mm -hmm. and what we need for these tiny humans full of trauma is supernatural love. Yeah. Something that extends far beyond our own understanding. And so I I really believe that what, what is needed in our city today is preventative, intentional um, integrative care yeah. for foster and adoptive families, both sides, if we want those placements to stick. Because it's not a matter of if it's going mm-hmm. to get bad. In order for children to come into the, the space where they're actually capable of healthy, loving relationships, they're going to have to have someone walk intentionally with yeah. them through what went wrong in relationships. Yeah. Dr. Purvis says, what was broken in relationship can only be healed through nurturing, healing relationship. And that takes work and intentionality. It's hard work, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. that that is why, as you mentioned before, we really think through, um, it doesn't scare people. We, we're not trying to scare people away from stepping into foster or to adopt. Um, you know, there are families who are needed, but we're not looking for perfect families. We're not looking for only willing families. We're looking for families who are willing to say, I don't know that I have what it takes, but I'm willing to learn. Yep. And I'm willing to just be available and step sure. in wherever is needed. And sometimes, I mean, that seems so fluffy, right? We don't need the family that says, I have it all together, because that usually means you're not the right fit in this role. Maybe support, maybe mm-hmm. mentor, maybe That's do right. those things. But when we talk about needing families who can step in, because we don't want to paint the picture that families aren't needed. We do need families, right. especially for kids who are older, especially for kids who have been in the system longer. Mm-hmm. So that means we need the families who can step in and say, teach me what to do. Teach me how to love these kids well. Give me the resources, um, which also begs the question. We always talk about we need more resources. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. types of resources do you feel like are needed? Um, how can churches step in? Yeah. Um, we know we talk a lot about how we need to replicate what Legacy 68.5 mm-hmm. is doing in the city because you're doing a lot and you're caring for lots of families and there are churches around our city who can step in and do the same thing. You don't have to be an expert, but you got to be willing to show up. So what would you say um, in terms of resources Mm -hmm. that you see are needed in our community? Sure. Uh, You mentioned uh, Legacy 68.5 does serve the city. 
we are what well, it's considered an outside the walls church, which means that we don't inward face. We are not an in reach to Houston's first and the foster and adoptive families at our church. Um, that's not all we do. We, we are an outreach as well. We say to families, if you are calling us and you have a need, we're going to do everything we can to work with your family and provide the resources that you need. But in a recent survey, what we realized in just one of our support groups, there were over 50 churches represented. And when I began to drill down and ask, okay, so what is your church doing to support you? Because many of these families are driving in from Pearland. We had one driving in from Laporte, um, like driving in from all over the city to attend support gatherings. And it's just not sustainable, quite honestly. I think that we can provide the nuanced information and mm-hmm. we're glad to do that. But at the end of the day, what we'd like to see is an army of churches raised up to say, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. But just like you're asking for teachable families to enter the foster adopt space, we're looking for teachable churches to enter that space and say, well, we can create a care community for that family. They're in our community. No sense having someone driving across 17 zip codes to get to this family to bring a meal, right? So I think doing just the simple things to support foster and adoptive families, and a lot of that looks like having a conversation. Yeah. Entering the space, showing up. Hey, I heard that you're that you're licensed as a foster family. I don't know anything about that. Would you teach me? Yeah. What amazing um, results would we have if staff and deacons and elders and members would come alongside those foster and adopt families, curious about the right things, mm-hmm. not the child's story, but the parent's story. How did you get into this? The parent story, what do you need so that you can continue to do this work? And to be clear, most foster and adoptive families are terrible receivers. Myself included. Um, And so we need people who are going to be persistent, who are not going to say, when can I bring you a meal? But going to say, I have availability to bring you a meal in the next seven days. Would you please choose a day and send me the time Mm -hmm. and the food allergies? It's changing the way we ask our questions and making it easy for the family to give a yes. Because that margin in meal prep for a family of six, that's time around the table that can just be spent laughing and hearing about days and extra bedtime snuggles because we don't have dishes to do and we don't have meals to prep, right? There's lots of things we need in the city, but I think the most practical thing as for churches to say yes to care communities. My husband's a pastor, so I know there's a lot of pastors out there that, that are just like, I'm so overwhelmed and I have so many other things going on. And how do I even begin to think of how we would do that in our church? And the reality is, we always say, it doesn't have to be the pastor leading that. It, it, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's the pastor saying, okay, church, this is what we're going to do. Um, but it, it's just shepherding our people, helping them to understand that there are vulnerable families within our context, not even just outside of our walls, but in our own walls. There are families who are vulnerable and we're committed to them. We're going to take ownership and come around them. We have resources on our website where we have a family profile form. That's just a tool to help people know how to ask those questions. What does your family like to do? What do you do for fun? How do you recharge? When do you need meals? Do you have babysitting needs? And it kind of gives some language and decreases is kind of the awkwardness of asking and receiving that help. And so I hope that some of those resources can be helpful. Um, For us, it was just 
I didn't need someone always to just come in and I, I mean, I would have loved for someone to do my laundry or to do the mm-hmm. dishes and things like that. But when we were in the thick of it, it was just someone would drop off coffee on my doorstep and say, hey, I know that me coming into your world right now wouldn't be super helpful, but here's a coffee. I'm with you. And it meant the world. It was just sure. a coffee. I felt seen. And yeah. I think that is what you're saying, right? We need to show up so that families feel seen. And that bar is so much lower than what we think. In fact, it reminds me of a story of a family who found themselves in some pretty deep crisis. I had accidentally washed my phone and was unexpectedly unavailable. And this crisis ensued and I I did not know about it. I was actually left the country the day that I washed my phone. So I was out of connection for an entire week. And when I came back, it was the first thing that I heard about. And I began to make the appointments to figure out how to support the family. And I said to the mom, I I feel so bad that I wasn't present for you. And she started weeping and she said, what are you talking about? You were. And I said, "Uh, no, I'm pretty sure I wasn't. She said, yes, you were. There are card writers from the church who have all the weeks to receive a card in the mail. We received two or three that said, hey, we're praying for you this week. Don't know what's going on in your world in the case of the boys, but we're with you. And these are the specific scriptures we're praying over you. We had instructed them to put an ice chest on their porch so that they could receive random meal drops. They got a meal drop. A pastor decided that he would jump in in my space, not knowing why I was in, you know, in, in, unable to communicate. And so he jumped in and I, she said, all of these people came around us because there was actually a system that had supported it organically. It wasn't programmed. Some of the best support stories are coming out of Mm non-programmed organic care. And that happens in relationship. We really love encouraging our members to say yes and to begin doing some of those low bar things like writing cards every month and praying for foster and adoptive families and sending those prayers through the mail. So starting with something super easy where you don't have to know what you don't know, you can just draw near. We don't expect everybody to be an expert. We just, again, we're just helping people show up, helping people feel seen. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. And I really, I mean, I say this to everyone who's here, but I I very much consider it a privilege um, to be here today, but also to just walk alongside you and walk alongside the ministry that you have because I couldn't do the work that we all are doing. Our team wouldn't be able to do the work that we're doing without you you all and your entire team. And so what a privilege that it is to serve our city alongside you. So thank you. Thank you so much. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.